0: Let's pray before we start. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the power that's in your word. The power to transform our lives. And we pray you're anointing your Holy Spirit upon these words so that they are your words. That the truth of God is ministered to by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, have your way again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. While we are in... The Gospel of Mark, we started out last week in the beginning of the Gospel. We mentioned last week that Mark is the shortest of the Gospels and it was more focused on Jesus being a servant more than what he taught. He showed his divinity and his power by doing rather than teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Mark was written to the Romans. Matthew was written to the Jews. Luke was written to the Greeks. John was written to everybody stressing the deity of Christ. Romans would have been more interested in what Jesus did more than what he taught. There's a saying that says more is caught than taught. In other words, people will see what you do more than they hear what you say. And so Mark's gospel is focused on that. And because of that, Jesus appears to be more of a servant in the gospel of Mark. So when we have our volunteer breakfast, that's what we are. We're all servants of God. And we want God to be acknowledged in that. So we left off with Jesus being taken out of the wilderness and tempted. Mark 1.12 says, At once the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was tested, he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. Notice who put him in the place to be tempted. God put him there. God put him in the desert to tempt him. God didn't do the tempting. He just put him in a position where he knew he would be tempted. When you do anything for the Lord, God is going to allow tempting to come in your life. Not so He can see how you react, but so that you can see how you react. So we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter one, verse 14. It says, later on, after John was arrested by Herod Antipas, Jesus went to Galilee to preach the good news. Now Notice that Jesus had to endure the temptation and testing before he began his public ministry. If you're called to do anything by God, and believe me, everybody is going to be called to do something. But before you do it, testing is going to come your way because he's going to try and get you to not do it. How many of you wake up on Sunday morning really tired? Seems like you're more tired on Sunday morning than you may be on Saturday morning or during the week. It just, it would feel so good to just sleep in, turn off the alarm, and just snooze. That's the enemy tempting you to stay home. If you're called by God to do anything, you are going to be tested even before you begin it. Because you're gonna have doubts in your mind the enemy's gonna put in, I can't do this, I shouldn't be doing it, maybe it's not God, it's, it's just me. All those things are testings by the enemy. And God wants you to see that it's, you are able to overcome that with his power. And this is not ministry. This is any area of your life. Whenever you make a decision or any kind of a major decision, you pray about it and then you make the choice, then they have what you call buyer's remorse. How many have ever had that? You buy something, you get it home, and two days later, are like, oh, man, I shouldn't have bought that. Whenever you start something, you're going to feel like, I shouldn't have have said yes to that. I I shouldn't be doing that. But if you feel God directing you, you should overcome that. God will give you the ability to overcome that. And once you start doing it, you will see God begin to move as we saw Jesus going to do right now. You're going to have doubts and fears and apprehensions. Even doubting that it was God directing you to whatever God's directing you to whether it's a new job or a ministry, whatever it might be, you're going to have doubts. Now, if you look back, you're in good company. Gideon had to fleece God twice. (laughs) Lord, is it really you? Abraham and Sarah doubted about the baby. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Zechariah didn't believe about John the Baptist. He said, how can I be sure? And Paul Even before he got saved, he had doubts about Jesus. The point is, the tempting or testing allows you to be convinced in your mind that God's calling you and that God wants to use you. Years ago, we had a class we taught on Wednesday night called Faith and Doubt. How many were part of that class? What the class was about is it's okay to have doubt because without doubt... You can't really exercise any faith you have to have doubt to overcome it by faith and if you don't doubt you don't want to prove it to yourself if there's no doubt about anything why would you need faith about anything when i walk in and turn the lights on i have no doubt they're going to turn on (laughs) however whenever there's a storm out i doubt And I worry about whether there's going to be power. And I have to overcome that doubt by going online to see if we have power. Now, Jesus successfully defeated the testing and the enemy and was about to begin his ministry. Once you resist the enemy and the doubts you're going to have, God will begin to use you at that point. What's James 4 say? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice the steps. Come to God. Resist the enemy, whatever doubts and apprehensions you have. Resist that. Once you do that, it'll flee from you. And then it goes on to say, come near to God, and he will come near to you. In other words, start doing it. And you'll see God ministering you, God meeting you where you are. Now at this point, John the Baptist was gone off the scene. In verse 14, it says, later on, after John was arrested by Herod Antipas, John was the forerunner. He came first. He was preparing the way for Jesus. His ministry was over. Jesus was, Jesus was there. Now he was, Jesus was about to begin. One commentary I like this says, this is meant to be encouraging. God buries his messengers, but his message goes on. You mentioned it this morning, as you get older, you groom the next generation to take your place. Why? Because the messengers go. But the message stays. The message keeps going on. Mark 1.15 says, at last the time has come, he announced the kingdom of God is near. Turn from your sins and believe the good news. Now, time here is not, not a chronological thing. It's, it's a period that God has determined that he was going to intervene in the affairs of men. It wasn't like he was watching a clock. It was just a period of time that God says, okay, now is the time I'm going to start working. Isaiah 14, 24 says, the Lord Almighty has sworn this oath. It will all happen as I have planned and it will come about according to my purposes. Colossians 1, 26 says that this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it's been revealed to us, his holy people. So this is, A block of time that God picked, okay, this is the time I'm going to start working. And up until that point, the Old Testament folks had no idea that the church was going to be. And now God begins to do it. The kingdom of God in this sentence refers to his ultimate power and authority. Jesus' coming brought both the message of salvation and the demonstration of God's kingdom to the people. That's why there was miracles, to get people's attention, to allow them to hear the gospel. Matthew 12, 28 says this, But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. What's God's kingdom? The power and authority. That was the theme of Jesus' earthly ministry. God's kingdom will also usher in the end times. And now when he's talking about this, the Jews knew this, and this is what they're thinking. They're thinking the end times. But in Daniel 7, it says this, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone who looked like a man coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and the royal power over all the nations of the world so the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So when Jesus is talking about his kingdom, there's two parts that he's talking about. The Jews would think about the end times. That's why they thought he was going to overthrow Rome. However, that was yet to come. The kingdom he's talking about now is the demonstration of God's power and anointing right now. And that Jesus has the authority to say what he's saying and what he is saying about salvation is validated by the miracles and the power that he exhibits. And the good news in Mark 1.15 says that time has come Turn from your sins and believe the good news. Well, the good news is that everyone's sins can be forgiven. How? Through the power and authority of Christ. When, the, when he would say, when he would, Jesus would forgive someone of their sins, the Pharisees would jump in and say, hey, who is this guy? How, how come he's forgiving sins? Well, the power was demonstrated in the miracles he did. Because what did he say after that? I well, want to show you that I have the authority and the power to do that. He told the guy who was on a mat, get up and walk. The power was demonstrated in the miracles. But the main objective was to show them that their sins can be forgiven. The good news is that you can be right with God. And whatever happens first, either the rapture or our death, We can have confidence that we will be with Jesus. When you get saved, not only do you have confidence now, you have confidence in what's going to happen. You have confidence for the end times, as the Jews would have understood the kingdom. Let me ask you a question. How do we prepare? Why do you prepare for things? How many of you set your clothes out last night for what you're going to wear today? because we had the kids over last night, and I wasn't sure if I'm going to be dressing in the dark or not. And if I'm dressing in the dark, you might not appreciate what I wear. <laughs> it just might all be plaids and stripes together. But you prepare for things. Why? Because you don't want to be scrambling at the last minute, hoping to get everything done. And usually what happens, if you wait to the last minute, something is missed, and you don't get it finished. If you plan and prepare, not only will everything be ready, you can relax and coast until that time comes because you know everything's done. I set the coffee up on usually Thursday or Friday. I prepare. And for you coffee drinkers, you're welcome. Because I don't want to be coming in here at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning scrambling to get the coffee done and people are sitting there with their cups waiting for the coffee to be done. You prepare for it. You don't want to be scrambling at the last minute. Knowing now that my sins are forgiven and I'm not waiting till the last minute gives me peace. Hey, my sins are forgiven. If I die right now, I'm good. I'm good with God. I don't have to worry about, well, I better get ready at the last minute to get... many I mean, no, deathbed confessions are pretty rare. Not very many people... A, have the opportunity to get saved before they die, right before they die. Nor do they want to. Talking to my dad before he passed away. You know, it's really... I know I'm going to see my mom. Don't know if I'm going to see my dad. Because even when he was really sick, he really didn't want to hear it. People on their deathbed, they're not going to instantly change who they are at that moment unless God works on them. And maybe he did, maybe he did on my dad. Maybe he listened to what I said. But I'm not going to bank on anybody else doing that. That's why you need to know now. Be prepared now. If you think you're going to wait until you're On your deathbed it's not gonna happen most deaths happen instantaneously car accident heart attack whatever you're not gonna have that opportunity you make your life right with God now and you can rest easy that whenever that happens you you and God are okay when you're 20 no one's gonna no one is gonna die when they're 20 Right? When you're 20, nothing's ever going to happen to you. You're invincible. Just ask any 20-year-old, you're invincible. And you're going to go out and sow your wild oats, and, the, and then at the last minute, maybe, you're going to ask for forgiveness. Not going to happen. What guarantee do you have that you're going to have that opportunity? How many of you are procrastinators? She'll verify that. Crash, procrastination never ends because you'll miss things or forget things or just don't do them because you waited till the last minute. Waiting for the right time to come to Jesus doesn't work either because there's never going to be a, quote, right time. You know what the right time is? I'll tell you the, what the right time is. The right time is now. Second Corinthians six, 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Indeed, is God, a, God is ready to help you Right now, today is a day of salvation. So Jesus is beginning his ministry. In verse 16, it goes on and says, One day as Jesus was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother, Andrew, fishing with a net, for they were commercial fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Come, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. So now Jesus started to preach. This is his first sermon that we know of in Mark. And now it's time to gather helpers around him. Those he can teach and disciple to carry on after he's gone, which is exactly what every believer should do: win people to Christ, show them Jesus, and prepare them to carry on when you're gone. And because Jesus taught with authority, he was able to call men from their regular jobs to leave their jobs and follow him. When you're called to the ministry, you just you have to leave your job whatever your secondary job is. And sometimes that's a scary thing because it doesn't, ministry is so different than any other occupation. Ministry is where you go into a a church and the people who hire you are also the people who fire you. And if you don't preach what they want to hear, they can fire you but now your job is to preach to them things they don't want to hear and hopefully not get fired. When you leave your secular job, you go into a ministry, you realize that God put you there and you're doing it for the Lord. And as you do it for the Lord, God will vindicate you. God will show you that what you're doing is right. There's a saying that says, the scribes spoke from authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus didn't go to their homes, knock on their doors and invite them. He called them where they were, the disciples in the middle of the day. God will speak to you through prayer and worship. He can also speak to you while you're doing something else. These guys are right in the middle of having their nets in the water, ready to bring up the stuff And the NIV, says, casting a net into the lake. As they're throwing their net in the lake, Jesus said, hey, follow me. It doesn't say, whoa, can we wait till the end of the day? I was in a sound booth on a Sunday morning during Worship practice when God called me. Not even thinking about it. We've been praying and fasting to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean. That God is able to speak to you for what he wants you to do specifically. Your lesson this morning was about senior saints and how we're grooming the next generation. Well, part of that was Everybody is called by God to do something. Not You don't have to all be preachers or teachers or whatever, but God is equipping everyone to do something, and we have to be sensitive to listen to the Holy Spirit about what that's going to be. God, what do you want to use me for right now? And the more we pray and fast and become sensitive to what God is speaking to us, God will either speak to you through his word or through your time of prayer. God will show you something that he wants you to do. He wanted you to give away your manger scene. Were you thinking about that at any point in your life? No. And God blessed her because she was obedient. That was fast, by the way. <laughs> Pretty speedy. But see, when you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit and you act on what God is telling you, God will meet that need at that moment. It may not be as fast as that, but you'll see God doing something. Jesus had a sense of urgency that the disciples were able to understand. And they were there to help rescue men and women from impending judgment. Now, we equate the fishing analogy with their occupation. But in the Old Testament, the analogy was used for judgment. Jesus is saying that fishing for souls has the same type of urgency as escaping judgment in the Old Testament would have been. Jeremiah 16, 16 says, But now I will send for for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. Again, talking about judgment upon Israel. Ezekiel 29, I will put hooks in their jaws and drag you out on the ground with fish sticking to your scales. I will leave you and all your fish stranded in the desert to die. Amos 4, 2, The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. So when Jesus says, you're going to be fishers of men, they understood the analogy. They knew he was talking about judgment, escaping the judgment that was to come. And they understood that analogy and they left right away because they knew the urgency. Mark verse 18 says, and they left their nets at once and went with him. God starts to work in your life and calls you to do things, and calls you to grow and mature, don't hesitate. Don't wait too long. Pray about it, get confirmation, but don't take too long to do it. In this case, they left their jobs and their livelihood. They chucked it all. They didn't pray about it. They heard Jesus speaking to them, and they did it. Verse 19 says, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Again, right in the middle of doing something normal. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So James and John left their job, and that was it. These guys, not only did they leave their job, they left their family. Now, they didn't just ditch out in their dad and say, hey, dad, child, I'll see you. They left their father with help. I remember when we were kids, my dad would ask us to start on helping help with a project. We, we would work on cars and stuff, and we would, you know, do body work and that kind of stuff. And So we would start with my dad, and about 10 minutes into it, my dad would turn around, and we'd be gone. <laughs> and he's left doing the job by himself. These guys were kind of going to bail on their dad. And so many times, I'm sure my dad realized that, well, every time he asked me for help, in about 10 minutes, they're all going to be gone. But he kept asking me. The point is, God will know that you're going to fail in your future and he still, he'll still call you. Which when I realized that point early on, I was like, that's amazing. That's <laughs> amazing. God knew I'm going to fail. Every single time I'm going to fail, he knows it. And yet he still called me. God's going to call you, and he knows every time you're going to fail. He knows every time you're going to miss the mark. He knows every time you're going to sin, he still chooses you. Everyone of Jesus' disciples ran away after he got arrested, and Peter denied him, and yet they, he still called them. He knew Judas was going to betray him, and yet he still called him. They doubted Jesus all throughout his ministry. Jesus knew that going in. He called him anyways. So don't think that God can't use you because you think you're going to blow it. You are. But God's still going to pick you. And God's going to still train you through all of that. God knows every time you're going to fail. And God will use every failure to teach you and train you to mature. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. So, when these guys left their father, they did not leave him alone. They didn't abandon him. They still obeyed the command to honor your parents. Because it appears that Zebedee, he was probably a rich guy, he had had hired people to help him. So, he had help. They knew their dad was going to be okay, and they left. Notice that they did not mistreat their dad in the name of religion which sometimes, if we're not careful, we might do. Mark 1.21 says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now, synagogues, you wonder how they just came about. Where did they go from the temple to the synagogue? Well, synagogues were established during the exile in Babylon when the main temple was destroyed. The synagogues were not not a place for the sacrifices. It wasn't where the altar was. This was just kind of a an interim thing until the temple was built. These these were places where they would read scripture, they would pray, they would worship God. The priests were not the ones that ran it. It was run by laymen in the town, and sometimes the Pharisees and scribes. And these laymen, whoever ran that that particular synagogue, they would allow and encourage visiting rabbis and teachers to come in and teach. It'd be like having a church, and whenever a preacher would come by, hey, come on in and share the word of God with us. And that's why they let Jesus talk. We'll, say, we'll see later that he might have been staying at, Jesus might have been staying at Peter and Andrew's place because it appeared that it was close to that particular synagogue. So Jesus was able to come in and preach, and Paul was able to come in and preach because that was their thing. They would allow visiting rabbis to come in and preach. So Mark one twenty two says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, as, not as the teachers of the law. Again, Mark's gospel seems to emphasize people's and emotions and reactions because he wants them to understand what they were feeling when they, got, when they saw and heard these things. Now, we don't know what he preached because he didn't, he didn't share. All it says was that he preached. And whatever he preached got a reaction from the crowd, which is exactly what Jesus wanted to do, to get them to understand what was being said. The word for amazed is a strong meaning from a combination of two words. And later on in Mark's gospel, we get a better understanding of the meaning of the word amazed. Mark 7.37 says this, people were overwhelmed with amazement, which is basically what they mean by the word amazed. When other teachers and scribes would teach, they would reference other people. In other words, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says that, as opposed to Jesus saying, I say, I say. The scribes spoke from authority. They would re- quote somebody else. Jesus spoke with authority. He would say, I am. I tell you today. Verse 23 says, Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out. Now, I, I've read this you know, a number of times, but as I'm reading it, I'm thinking to myself, this guy was in the synagogue. So how many times was he there? Was he there like every week? It, it appears that he wasn't an out-of-control person who was possessed. He was just a guy. And no one, no one recognized him. No one saw something different in him. And I wonder how many times did he attend this thing in the synagogue and no one ever recognized that he was demon-possessed. How many people do we think attend church that we think are saved, but aren't. Maybe they were being used by the enemy. This guy was demon-possessed in the synagogue, and up to that point, he was causing no trouble. But when Jesus walked in, I'm sure his first reaction was to oppose what Jesus was going to do. He cried out. Next thing you're thinking, didn't any of the rabbis or teachers or leaders recognize this guy was demon-possessed? If someone like that attended church, would anybody recognize it? The scariest, it's not a scripture verse, but it's a, a truth. If the Holy Spirit ever left our church, would we notice it? Think about that. Wow. Hopefully, if that happens, the gifts of the Spirit, one of them being discernment, we would discern that. But it seemed like nobody there recognized it or discerned it or anything. And I wrote down maybe because all their leaders were involved with the enemy as well. Which John 8.39 says, Pharisees say, Abraham is our father, they answered, If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do the things that Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such things. You are doing the things that your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And then John 8, 44 says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Jesus discerned that this guy had an evil spirit. The evil spirit rep- recognized who Jesus was and cried out. Verse 24 says, what do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. When the enemy comes into your camp, instantly, every Christian should be alert. Something's going on. The Holy Spirit should speak to you at that moment, thinking something is not right. Verse 23, look, it says, A evil spirit, one. But here, it says, What do you want to do with us? What's that mean? There's one spirit, but he's saying, What do you want to do with us? Well, who, who's the only other person there? The guy. You have one spirit and the guy who was holding the spirit. That's the us. So it appears that the man was in cooperation with the spirit, the demonic spirit. Doesn't say he was going crazy. He wasn't trying to kill himself. He was a- sitting there normally with other people. The guy was okay with demon, being demon-possessed. Non-Christians can open themselves up to demon possession by the things they engage in. Seances, tarot cards, Ouija boards, all those things, they open you up to being demon-possessed. If if not least, demon-controlled. And Christians have no business doing them at all because if you're involved in that, the enemy is going to control you as well. He won't possess you, but he will oppress you. And people who deal with these things, they can appear to be normal. But when confronted by Jesus, the true nature of the demoniac comes out. And he says, what do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon knows that Jesus is fully man because he acknowledges him as Jesus of Nazareth. He also recognizes that Jesus is God, the Holy One of God. Demons know who Jesus is. Doesn't make them saved, but they know about him. You can know about God and not be saved. You can know everything there is to know about Jesus and not be saved. James 2.19 says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There's a lot of people with a lot of letters after the name who have been to seminary who are not saved. They may attend church. They know who Jesus is, and yet they're fearful of judgment because they know they're not saved. This guy appeared to be acting normally, probably probably a regular attender since no one questioned who he was, and yet never understood the very law he was being taught. He sat in there. The Pharisees read, obviously, from the Old Testament, if not the Torah, telling everything about God, and still they were under that teaching and didn't recognize it. People can sit in a Bible-believing church their entire life and never really believe what's being taught from the pulpit. And hopefully what is being taught from the pulpit is biblical, which is another whole sermon in itself. Verse 25 says, be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The word be quiet literally means be muzzled. It's the same phrase Jesus used when he stilled the storm. The demon tried one more attempt by shaking the man, but he had to submit to God's servant's authority. Jesus is a servant of God. His authority allowed him to come out. Verse 27 says that people were so amazed that they asked each other, who is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Again, everyone was amazed. They realized something they had never seen before. Something new in their midst had arrived. All the teaching from the Pharisees and scribes and rabbis, it was all the same thing. But when Jesus came, they realized something was different. You can be in a church all your life and not learn anything, but the minute the minute you raise your hand or you confess Christ, it changes your life, changes instantly. Now you may not know everything at that moment, but you do know that things have changed. These people had been there, I don't know how many times they come to the synagogue to hear these rabbis preach and the same thing over and over again. But the minute Jesus walks in, wow, who is this guy? What's he doing? He has power over evil spirits. The miracles of God gets people's attention. And they validate that what Jesus said was true. Now we have a new doctrine and a new power because he was teaching with authority. And both of those have to go together. Jesus' teaching always goes along with his works. Jesus didn't use any incantations or spells or anything like that. All he did was command it and the spirit came out. And it was evident by what the people said in verse 28. It says, he even gives orders to evil spirits. Orders. Not a spell, not an incantation, not even a prayer. He ordered them to come out. That's power and authority. However, even though this information spread everywhere, it's not what Jesus wanted. He constantly told people not to tell anybody. Now you think, why? Why Spread the news, Brett. Because this, notori- this type of notoriety would cause problems with the Jews and the Romans. You would have Jews following him only for the miracles. Any church calls a prayer meeting, you get a handful of people. You call a healing service, The place is packed. Because people want the miracle. They don't want the relationship. And the Jews were all following him because they wanted the miracles. They don't care about the relationship. They want to be healed. So he didn't want that. He didn't want people following him only for the miracles. Which kind of begs the point, if you're following Jesus only for the blessings, it's the wrong reason. You follow Jesus, whether or not life goes well for you. God promises to be with you. But the Bible also says in this life, you will suffer persecution. You will have tribulation. So when these things come, it's not that God isn't good. It's that God said, it's coming. I'll get you through it. I'll help you through it. But don't be surprised when they do come. And don't just yell at me when they do because I told you they're coming. So the Jews would follow him for miracles, and the Romans would think that he's going to be an insurrectionist trying to overthrow the government, which is kind of what the Zealots wanted, and other Jews wanted him to overthrow the Roman government. Acts six says this. So when they met together, they asked him, these are the disciples, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I'm like, okay, Lord, let's do it. Let's, let's overthrow the government. Their disobedience in in relaying all this information always caused problems for Jesus. And we've talked about the servant's identity. That was last week. Who he was. Who's God's servant. His identity was Messiah. Today we showed the servant's authority. Jesus had authority over demons. He served the people by driving out the demons. When we serve God... We do that by blessing other people, ministering to other people, whether it's in a church setting or your home or your work, wherever it is. You're God's servant. You, As we say, you're the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus isn't walking physically among us anymore. He's walking in here. And God uses you to do what he would do if he were here. When When Jesus says, you'll do these works and much greater works, He wasn't talking about quality of work, he was talking about quantity of work. There's one of him, and there's multitudes of us. We have the ability to do what Jesus did if we're obedient, if we listen to the spirit and we are directed by God's spirit. So we know who he is, we know he has authority, and next week we're gonna talk about his sympathy. Mark mentions sympathy and has emotions in it because that's how Jesus felt. As we mentioned at the beginning of the series, we're focusing on Jesus being the servant to mankind. Some theologians call this section the suffering servant. Jesus suffered all kinds of indignities and pain. Why? So he could be a servant to us. Watch Mark later on say, I came not to be served, but I came to serve others. And if the king of the universe wants to serve me and us, who are we to say that we don't want to serve other people? If Jesus can leave his glory to serve us sinners, how much more should we be willing to serve other people? How do we serve them? You pray for them, obviously. You meet their needs if you're able. You lead them to Jesus if you have the opportunity. You be to them what Jesus wants you to be to them. There was a term years ago called friendship evangelism. How many remember that term? There's a, there's a phrase in praying that says, talk to God about your neighbor before you talk to your neighbor about God. It means we pray for someone, for them to be open to the Spirit of God. We pray for an opportunity to be able to talk about what Jesus has done for me. And then, but you actually have to talk to them about Jesus. I, I remember one preacher saying that, someone said, well, you, you just live the life in front of them and they'll, they'll come to know Christ. And his response was, well, you're, you must... Be such a holy person that people are going to fall down at your feet and get saved because of how you live. It's not how it works. They may see your life and they want to know about your life, but you have to actually tell them about what God did. That's how you serve the Lord. Because you want people to be with you in heaven. Your family, your friends. Like I said, every day I miss my folks. And it really... It, really kills me that I don't think I'm going to see my dad. You know, maybe God was merciful to him and he accepted Christ before he died. I don't know. I don't know. Could I have talked to him more? Probably. Could I have done more? Maybe. I don't know. But you want to be sure that you've had every opportunity and used every opportunity to talk to someone about Christ so that when that time comes, you're confident, you're you're good to go, that you know you've done everything in your power to minister to them, to give them an opportunity. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus said, hey, you're doing everything, what? Good, but here, do this, so all you have. What happened? The guy left. You know what Jesus didn't do? Wait, 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 wait we can talk about that. Let's, let's, let's hug it out. Come on, we can, we can talk. What did he say? See ya. The guy walked away. Our job is to give them an opportunity, to pray for them and continue to give an opportunity. If they walk away from you, what's the Bible say? Shake the dust off. You've done what God's called you to do. You're responsible for doing your part. God's responsible for doing his part. The Bible says that God's the one who saves, not us. We just put the meal in front of them, give them the word. God's the one who does the work which really takes the burden off of us. Because if they walk away, it's not because of what you did or didn't do. You've done what God asked you to do. You're God's servant. You've done what the master has asked you to do. What comes after that is now the master's responsibility. And you know what? Maybe down the road, somebody else ministers ministers to them. And combined with what you did, they come to know Christ. You may be the answer to somebody else's prayer. My brothers and Anna's brothers live in Florida and Erie. You know, we don't get around them that much but I pray, Lord, send somebody else to them. Send someone else to them. Well, maybe someone's praying that about somebody here and you're the person that God's going to send to them. That's how you're a servant, by being obedient to do things like that. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? I know that if you're in God's house this morning, you really want God to move in your life. And I believe that we come not because it's it's a Sunday. You come because you want to be in God's presence. You want God to do something either in you or through you or for you. Maybe you've had a horrible week and you just need God to give you some peace and comfort. Well, the Bible says he can do that and he does do that. But maybe you're here and you just came because you needed something and God said something to you or God spoke through the songs or something that you heard this morning that you needed to hear. That's the blessing of God. That's being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're like the person we talked about. You sit in church, but you really don't know Christ. You know about Jesus. And you've been in church uh, a lot. But you've never really come to the point where you said, Lord, I believe that you died for me. And I want to be forgiven of my sins. The Bible says we've all sinned against God, all of us. And we all continue to sin. We won't be free from sin until we get to heaven. But if you've never accepted Christ, you're still living with the sins you've always committed. And the Bible says you're going to be judged for those sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that's separation from God. But the Bible also says that Jesus came. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. All the sins that you're now carrying that you're going to be judged for, the Bible says Jesus came and took all those sins on the cross. So all those things you've done in your past that you think you're going to be judged on, if you trust Jesus, he takes all those away, wipes the slate clean. And the Bible says now you're a new creation, a new creation, a new creature. The old things have gone away, the new things have come. But the Bible says that also it only applies to those who accept him. The demons know this stuff, but they haven't accepted it. The Bible says, as many as receive him, in other words, accept his truth, only those people did he give the authority to be called children of God. So it's not just enough to believe it. You have to receive it. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved because it's from your heart mouth that you confess and your heart that you believe that makes you saved so if you're here this morning you've never really come to a point in your life where you said yes i know i'm a sinner and i need forgiven jesus forgive me of my sin if that's you and you want to have assurance that you're in the family of god i want you to raise your hand right now we're going to pray i believe that god's going to work in your life Or maybe you're here and you accepted Christ years ago, or maybe even months ago, but you've kind of gotten away from it. The cares of the world kind of come in and choke things out. Well the Bible says that you can forget all that and to start anew again. First John 1 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. That's written to Christians. So if you've gotten away from God, you're not reading, you're not praying, you're not going to church, but you want to get back involved, you want to be what God wants you to be, that verse is for you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You got another new slate. You can start new with God. If that's you, you know you're on the wrong path and you want to get on the right path, I want to pray with you. Just slip up your hand. I'll come to you if I need to and I'll pray with you. And for the rest of us, we have a hunger for the things of God. We're praying and we are becoming more and more sensitive to the Spirit of God in our lives, personally and in, corporately in church. We want to be as a church that is on fire for the things of God. And we are always attuned to what the Holy Spirit wants to do through us, whether it's in the church setting, or in our family, at home, or at work, or when we're out. We wanna be sensitive to the move of God. So Lord, I pray you would continue to fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to feel that. Allow us to see what you're doing in us. And allow us to see tangibly the things that are changing. As we become closer to you, obviously things, Lord, will be put by the wayside. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to see that, man, we are making progress and we are becoming more and more like you want us to be. We never arrive, but we always continue to grow. So, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit fills each person here and allows them to see and experience what you want to do in their life. And every time they experience it, they realize that, Man, the God of the universe is talking to me talking to me. Who am I that God's talking to me? And that will encourage you to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So Lord, we commit each one of us to you and we trust you to do that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday. Don't forget we're doing an Experiencing Spiritual Breakthroughs on Wednesday night. We encourage you to come out and be a part of that as well.